This is Sam. This is Paul. Hey, this is the Charisma Combat, Alex Fernandez. You can hear me on the Two Legit Sports Podcast and see all my MMA boxing contributions at the Fantasy Sports Cave. I just want to tell you all something. You guys need to get to your computers. You need to log into Patreon and you need to support the Southpaw Podcast. Okay, Paul and Sam, they got the skills that pay the bills. They are the men of the hour. They got all the power and they are too sweet to be sour. What you see is what you get. And what you don't see is better yet because what you don't see is behind the Patreon paywall, ladies and gentlemen. So make sure to go there. Give them a couple bucks. Patreon.com slash SouthpawPod. All together, folks, type that in your browser. On your phone, it'll work. On the laptop, it'll work. Get that credit card out. Get that PayPal logged in. Do what you got to do, folks. Support the boys. Today on the podcast, we have Alex Fernandez, host of the Too Legit Sports Podcast. You're also part of the Fantasy Sports Cave, and you do a podcast for them. Is it just combat sports, or is it combat sports like MMA and boxing? It's uh, MMA and boxing, and right now we're doing that just weekly, and hopefully we want to do that twice a week and bring on more fighters and more guests. And if the content you know grows even more, we got to do one boxing and one MMA per week, but it's going great. So how did you get involved in combat sports? How did that become like your online niche? Because you've been doing stuff on YouTube for a while. You were talking about gaming to wrestling, like pro wrestling. How did you start defining yourself as the combat sports boxing guy? I mean, for me, it was the easiest thing to talk about, right? Growing up my whole life, I watched boxing growing up in a Latino household. I remember watching Oscar De La Hoya versus Felix Trinidad on the, on the pay-per-view, right? It's ever since, all the way growing up when I was a kid, it was always in boxing, watching boxing every weekend. And then MMA started. Then I've been watching UFC consistently since I would say UFC 71. I think that's with Rampage and Chuck. That was like my first. And ever since then, I, I'm hooked. I've watched him nonstop. And of course, you got to have pro wrestling in there as well. I've been watching pro wrestling my whole life. Took a break uh, in my teens and then got back into it as well. But that's that's all I've been doing, man. I love combat sports. It's the easiest thing for me to talk about, even though I love all sports in general. I just always loved combat sports. For your other podcast, right? Two Legit Sports, you talk about all the sports? Yeah. I just I do like a general ESPN style where, okay, what's hot? What are the topics? Let's talk about it. Basketball, football, baseball, soccer even. Do you also talk pro wrestling for that one? No, man. Pro wrestling now for me is just like more of a casual conversation. But now we find out more and more that most combat sports fans, not most, but there is a Venn diagram. There is, there is an overlay of combat sports fans and pro wrestling fans. And there's a lot of marks in the in the boxing industry. Like I've noticed in boxing media, MMA media, there's a lot of marks. So there's always pro wrestling talk going around. The reason why I keep bringing up pro wrestling is because if you've been following Alex for a while online, like Instagram to YouTube, or even look him up, he has a lot of interviews that he's done with pro wrestlers. I almost feel like you got your initial interview microphone skills with the pro wrestlers. Yeah, you, I think I agree with you on that. And I would say 2010 to 2012-ish, I was like an NBA and uh, MMA mostly on YouTube through the gaming scene. Like I would cover, I would simulate the game on UFC, on PlayStation, whatever, talk about the game. And then my pro wrestling stuff got more in depth and I found that love for pro wrestling again in 2012-ish 
And then that stuff really took off. People loved how I talked. I did my voices. I talked like the game, Triple H, uh, the Cerebral Assassin. I would do my different voices. And then WWE dug it, and they would send me to different places. I'd go to the gaming events, community events. And, yeah, that really took over a good portion of my 20s right there. People really loved my pro wrestling. I was kind of like, eh, you know, it's not really what I want to do. I'd rather be known as like a more of a sports guy. Oh, but okay. So you kind of got pigeonholed a little bit. 100%. I got boxed into that hole. And especially because WWE fans are like hardcore. Like they don't want to see you or hear you talk about anything else. Yeah. Besides WWE. That's true. You know what I mean? If I'm talking about an MMA fight, they want, okay, we'll only talk about Brock Lesnar when he fights. Like I'm like, oh, no, man. Like I love all that. And then I would talk about NFL or NBA. They'd be like, no, bro. Let's just, and the numbers would show that. They would dislike it like crazy. They'd comment. So it definitely, and a lot of people who will tell you who are in that community who talk about WWE online. The fans will pigeonhole them, and I kind of got stuck in that for a second. And uh, so it's kind of a blessing I don't do that as much anymore. Now it's kind of like a icing on the cake thing, not as my main course. But you're right. I, I, I started interviewing. My first interview was, I think, all those SummerSlam guys. I would interview Curtis Axel. There's a Lost Big E interview. There's uh, Damien Sandow. Most of the guys that don't exist anymore. Uh, AJ Styles is like my newest one. That was one back in the day. So I have a Scott Hall interview. Scott, I was a huge Scott Hall mark, Razor Ramon mark. And, you know, they say they, you should never meet your idols. Uh, I don't know if you want to put the Scott Hall. Huge a-hole. But he was still a great. <laughs> he's still a good guy to interview. Uh, the, he's like, I guess he wanted to be in heel character mode. The, uh, uh, jabroni. Uh, uh, uh. I was like, all right, man, get off the sauce, man. We're just trying to have an interview. Do you think he was drunk, though? 100% this guy was on. He, he's just hang, he was hanging out with his boys. It's WWE Fan Access. WrestleMania weekend. Everyone's in town again, right? So everyone's reconvening, going to the bar and. Yeah, that was he was he was only excited to talk about his son Cody Hall, which I have no idea if he's still working. Um, but he was, yeah, that was a very interesting interview, and to get the interview to say the least, because he was like he thought he was back in nineteen like ninety six, where it's like, oh, I'm the shit, I'm Scott Hall, NWO baby. And they're like, nah, bro, you're just hanging out at Fanax. It's like you don't even have a booth. You're just there. <laughs> it's not like we pulled you away from an autograph session, right, Scott? You were just hanging out. I was like, man, I'm marking out. 20, 2015 Alex is freaking out right now. And uh, that was interesting. So on the flip side, are there any people that you kind of look up to or kind of uh, not admire, but appreciate their commentating style, like broadcasters that you look up to? Yeah, I would say HBO Max Kellerman was really good. I think he's the best, in my opinion. He's also. great. I mean, he's like the one guy that I really enjoyed when it comes to the, to the boxing commentary. In terms of boxing commentators right now, there's not really great boxing commentators. I mean, I don't want to be mean. The Fox pay-per-view guys, in my opinion, weren't that great. I hate to, They're really great to me. PBC's great. But that Spence Garcia pay-per-view was kind of brutal to listen to throughout the fight. Um, I like Max Bretos. He does the DAZN. does a lot of DAZN Golden Boy cards. He's great. In terms of pro wrestling, Morrow is just the, the most over-the-top cartoon character ever. Some people dislike it. I dislike it. Some people think he's too much. I, I just love that passion because he, it translates over to his boxing and his MMA stuff as well. What do you think about Timothy Bradley moving over to commentating? He's okay. He, he's he's all right. I think he needs a, a stronger guy other than Joe Desator to, to guide him. He needs a, he needs a stronger partner. Uh, Andre Ward is good, but he needs a guy to keep him excited because Andre Ward is like a super like by the book. He's going to tell you and he's not a super exciting guy when he talks about it, but he'll break down a fight incredibly. I thought Roy Jones Jr. is a great boxing commentator as well, but now he's back to training. 
I think Dominic Cruz is super underrated. I think yeah. he's really good. I like Dominic Cruz. Uh, Daniel Cormier is always going to do the damn thing. He's really good. He brings that excitement. Yeah. Even though he was a little delayed, that UFC Philly one was pretty funny with him and Cruz and Anik. That was a pretty animated one. I think Anik was a little slow out of the gate. I think he's really found his groove now doing the UFC stuff. Uh, underrated, I would say the Dan Hardy. And I don't know. I forgot who he does it with. But the Dan the Hardy. Oh, the British guy. Yeah, they're really good as well. Felder's solid. Um, but if I, 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 I think if you threw me in there, I'd be really good with all those guys as well. I think I would really bring excitement. Like you pair me with Andre Ward, I got like a fire and ice combination. I think it'd be really good. You actually see the need for somebody who's just passionate sounding also who sounds excited because when you have a boxing broadcast and there isn't the excitement guy or a UFC broadcast and it's like Dominic Cruz, John Anik and somebody else and no DC, no Joe Rogan. Yeah. They all just sound dry. You they all just energy. sound flat. Yeah. You need Joe Rogan to be like, oh my God. Like he's gonna lose his shit every fight. You need that. Like, oh my God. Oh, like you need you need that guy. Because it, it really shows it back to the Spence and Garcia fight. I don't know if anybody, I don't know if you guys watched that fight with Joe Goosen, Lennox Lewis, and uh I think Kenny Alberts, the other guy. There was no like, continuity within those guys. Everybody was kind of on their own little tangent when it came to that fight. There was no like guy to bring that excitement i know the fight was a wash but there was no guy to even like bring that excitement out i actually don't think you need both dc and joe rogan either have joe rogan or have dc but when it's both of them at the same time it's like actually too much could be but i'm one of those guys that really i come from that pro wrestling like i want like guys just sh shitting their pants throughout the whole fight slobber knocker oh my god my god almighty through the table it's also when you don't have somebody that brings the energy. It sounds like every other generic sport. It sounds like baseball. It sounds like football where you just have old dudes. And then you see the receiver going to the end. Oh, it looks great. Yeah, you can't have that in combat sports. No, you need a guy to bring that fire. And you notice that you mentioned Tim Bradley, Andre Ward, Roy Jones. It's almost as if their commentating style is just like how they fought. Because when you say Andre Ward is by the book, Andre Ward never made mistakes. He wasn't always the most exciting guy to watch, but you saw a textbook execution where he would see you fight, break it down, go to his corner, hear what Virgil had to say, and then he figured out, oh, okay, what am I doing? Oh, all right, I'll just work around the hook. All right, I'll tag him when he's jabbing. And you see that with the commentary too, but it's not as exciting. There is no Jim Lampley like, oh, and then he's got... So... It also got to mention the great Jim Lampley. He's great legend. Back in the day with him and Roy Jones and was it Larry Merchant? Correct. He's Larry Merchant. Oh my that God. That was actually amazing because you had like the old, like grouchy codger. And then you had like the really good butter voice play by play guy. And then you had Roy who brought the excitement and the knowledge. It was just good. Sometimes he didn't make sense all the way, but Roy Jones had that passion and, and anything he said, you'd be like, yeah, okay, that works. Like go for it. And then he would start arguing with uh, Larry Merchant. Yeah. They had that good back and forth, that chemistry. And you also had the Her uh, Harold Letterman just come in there randomly screaming his, his scorecard. Okay, Jim, yeah. in this round. <laughs> I feel like that's a fake voice. Like, I think he realized that is his iconic voice and he just does it. Now, hopefully I, I get to meet Harold now. He'll be like, okay, Alex, this is how I have that. 98, 97. I wish that would be great. And yeah, we don't have that. Who's the, there's nobody that does that anymore in... Eddie Bravo used to do that, I think, a while back, right? He he would he would live score the fight. That was like they tried that for like two or three UFCs. Yeah, and they oh, they had for sucked. a while. No, huh? I thought it was just more than just two or three. They had him on for like at least like ten. Yeah, 
Those were wild. Yeah, Eddie was, yeah. Well, that was like when Eddie was working for Joe Rogan on the man show. And then that show got canceled or whatever. He lost that day job. Right. And he wasn't commentating on King of the Cage no more. So I think Joe like hooked it up so he could get that job. And then after a while, people were just like, what is this? There's no need for this. It's only five or three rounds. Like, come on, man. We don't really need it. Eddie Bravo would be the kind of guy who's like, I scored that round 9, 11, truther. And then he just goes off on a trail. Yeah. like, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's get into the fight. So let's first start with the main event. Max Holloway versus Dustin Poirier. And this is their second fight. The first time was at 145 with Dustin Poirier winning that fight. And uh, this is the second time again. And Dustin Poirier won again. On all the judges' cards, it was 49-46. Just a dominant, dominant performance by Poirier. Though it was competitive. Let's start with you, Alex. What did you think about Dustin Poirier's performance. The first thing I noticed in that fight is, holy crap, look at the back on Dustin Poirier. The dude was so big compared to Holloway. His back was huge. And although he was shorter than Max, he had the three-inch reach advantage. I think it was the perfect strategy. He came out guns blazing, though, in that first round. He was landing at will. I thought Max was seriously hurt, but he's got that coconut Hawaiian head, bro. I mean, nothing's going to hurt Max Holloway. It's a great performance. He was throwing punches, and he it looked like he got a little gassed a little bit that second, that third round. Max kind of turned it on on him a little bit with the volume. He weathered the storm and, you know, did a lot of spitting. I think that was one. I don't know if that was a strategy. Did a lot of spitting in that fight for some reason. But uh, Dustin did the damn thing, man. I think it was great keeping him at distance, landing punches. The jab was really good. Dustin's jab, I think, was really the X factor in that fight. Max really couldn't get off and do his thing. I thought that's the only way Max could win was that vo- with volume. And man, that power was a lot too. Messed up, messed him up badly. So, do you feel like Dustin's boxing was better than Max's in this fight? I think so. But Max, is, Max usually comes in with that reach advantage. He's able to come in and keep people at the distance, keep people at the end of his jabs and his punches, and he was he was unable to do so in this fight. Usually, Max has always had, strangely enough, a reach disadvantage, even though he's taller for the weight class at 5'11", his 69-inch reach advantage always puts him at the short end. Even with Brian Ortega, who's 5'8", yeah. Brian Ortega had like a 72 reach advantage. So they figure... Same as, Ma- same as uh, Max. I mean, as Dustin, rather. But Max is always the taller guy. That's what it is. So he's punching down at them and they have to punch up. So it still ends up kind of being an advantage. But with this one, they were about the same height, right? No. no there was Ma- clearly Max was way taller. Oh, Max was taller. Yeah. So he basically was fighting his typical kind of opponent height and reach, except this one was just a lot thicker than he was used to. I mean, that you could tell that was a, a difference in what. And Dustin's even said he he struggles to make fifty five. I mean, he was going to fight at seventy against Nate, you know. So it's a big fifty five against this, uh, you know, a small fifty five, and you could just totally tell the difference. I think that power really threw everything off from the beginning of that fight. I mean, he was getting clocked with some shots and. You know, my Max with his clapping, you know, he was doing his thing, but I think it was just too much, man. Do you feel like he went up to 155 too quickly? Like, do you think he should have taken the fight six months down the line to acclimate to the weight? I think Max Holloway was just, he's just like, oh, I'm going to be my 145 self and it's going to carry over and I'm going to do the damn thing. And I've, be, I've gotten better. I'll take the fight against Dustin Poirier. I've gotten better. I've matured. I, I think, but... He, that's the difference. And I don't really know if he could develop into like a, I don't know if that's Max's body type to be, to, to add more to that frame, become a big, thick 155er. I don't know. Well, do you think that he also made the mistake of 
employing a 145 pound strategy at 155? For sure. I mean, but that that's that's gonna that's Max Holloway. He's really gonna change his style. He's gonna become like, like a super super duper counter puncher, like he did in this fight. He became a counter puncher, but he was just gonna jump around and jog around and counter punch the whole fight. I don't think that's Max Holloway's style. He wants to come forward. He wants to bang. I've always thought that whenever fighters successfully move up a weight class, there's always caveats to it. So when Dustin moved up from 145 to 155, he didn't get thrust into a five round title fight. They built up to it. Same thing with Gastelum. Same thing with what Luke Rockhold is trying to do at 205. He's not fighting for the title and is also coming off losses. But they said, well, DC, there's like, yeah, but DC started his career at heavyweight. He just moved back to where his home originally was. And with Max, he didn't have time to acclimate to 155. And like you mentioned, can he at frame? He probably could, but it'll probably take a concentrated effort of maybe upwards to a year to 18 months to where he could put on the muscle, still retain speed because he just looked like, oh, I'll just not cut 10 pounds. So he lost some of that trademark speed. Maybe that if he punches in and out, he gets caught at that just second, that split second where, okay, I'm, I, oh, no, I'm still here. And he gets clipped by Dustin. So it might be worthwhile investment after he's cleared out the division. But at right now, when he just moved up, it's like that probably wasn't the best idea. Now with the score of 49-46, were you surprised by that score? Did you think it was a lot closer than that? Or were you like, oh, no, that makes perfect sense? I think sense. that's the fair score. Uh, a lot of people thought that it was 2-2 going into the fifth. I mean, I, I could kind of see that, but I think the damage, the judges see that damage. And they were like, oh, man, this is, you know, he's getting wrecked. I mean, that, yeah, Max was landing. But Dustin Poirier is just more effective. Everything was more effective coming out of Poirier's side. What did you think, Paul? I thought that Dustin just took everything Max had. And even when he was gassed and hurt, Max couldn't put him away. And there's something to be said about being the bigger, stronger guy in the division, where even if a guy is more active, more accurate, has more volume, if he can't hurt you, you might just be willing to take it. And says, you know what? I'll get beat this round. And I'll just come back in the next and try to finish you off. Or I'm up three rounds, possibly four. I don't care. I'll just kind of take it and just finish you off in the last round. Max is somebody who's known for really high fight IQ. I was surprised that he didn't adapt. Like he just kept insisting that I'm going to wear you down. I'm going to wear you out and just overwhelm you with volume. And it was clear that Dustin could just walk through Max's punches. So you land five, and normally you can land five, and you don't have to defend after that because the other guy is hurt. Whereas this time, every time he landed five, Dustin would get him with one or two and hurt him because Dustin just ate him. Like his face wasn't that marked up at the end. So what do you do when the other guy can walk through all your punches? You can still win, but you can't keep fighting as if you're hurting them when you're not. And that's what I was surprised at. He must have thought he was hurting him. And then uh, Poirier even said in round three he was getting hurt. And that was that was the time where he was almost finished by uh, by Max. But look, man, Dustin's fought Justin Gaethje. He's fought Eddie Alvarez. He's fought, you know, dudes that really freaking crack. True 155ers that can crack. So, I, I mean, it wasn't going to happen. Max probably just really believed that over the five rounds, if you listen to the corner, they're like, okay, now this is our round. Championship rounds this is where we want him. I thought he was just going to wilt in the fourth and the fifth, and he was taking deep breaths. Dustin was taking deep breaths, but it wasn't enough. And I, he was having trouble with that that defense, that elbow up defense that Dustin Poirier was doing. He kept going to the corner. And he was like, oh, he's blocking weird. He's doing weird things. Like they, he, he, he's like he could, didn't know what to do with that. Yeah, that modified shoulder roll. 
it was like a Philly shell with like a high elbow. Yeah, it was very interesting. I haven't. I don't know if I've seen another fighter implement that. It was very cool. It's not so much that another fighter hasn't employed hasn't employed it before, but just to do it as a response to everything. Max figured, okay, can I hit the body? But then he was getting tagged up, so he might have been hesitant. And in the first round, I believe Max got clipped pretty good in the eye, and it might have been a situation where he has a hard time gauging distance. So maybe some of that in and out movement he's good at and he's known for. When you can't gauge, okay, how far am I? How close am I? It's like, I have to fight this in close range or else I'm going to get clipped on the outside. So that caused him to just take more damage on the inside. Max could have won this fight if he employed a Michael Bisping approach. So when Max hits four or five, he can't just keep pressing forward. He hits four or five or even two and three and just get the hell out of there. And just kind of play that kind of points game because it didn't look like that version of Max had the power to hurt Dustin Poirier. I think maybe if he had a good eight months to bulk up, it'd be a different story maybe. But that iteration of Max just didn't have that power. He could have won with a different game plan, but it wasn't going to be the guy who wilts the other guy. Because if Justin Gaethje wasn't going to wilt Dustin Poirier, Max Holloway is not going to do it. With that said, let's move on to the next fight, which was the co-main event, which was also an interim championship match with Kelvin Gastelum versus Israel Adesanya. And the score for that was 48-46 Adesanya. What do you think about the score, Alex? It was fair. If you, I had a 2-2 going into the last round, and that last round was a 10-8. Uh, I'm going to take it back to the entrance, though, because did you notice my man came out so hot that he took his, he took his shorts off as well? No, I you didn't, didn't see that he ran out. He took his sweatpants off so quick. He had his just he had his his, his tights on. He did a, he did a black beast Lewis in the in the in the in the in the checkpoint. He had to go get his shorts and put them on. He was super pumped for this fight. The sprint, it was all that. Uh, back to the main fight though. I thought Adesanya was going to win. I think the distance was going to be a huge factor. Eight and a half inch reach. Uh, even though even though you know Gaslam deals with reach pretty well. I mean he is a super small one eighty five er. He's like caught in between. He can't make 170. So he's just, he's got to fight at 185. Gastelum avoids punches pretty well, but he doesn't avoid kicks pretty well from watching his, uh, his history of fights. So I thought Adesanya was going to pick him apart, set a lot of traps for him, which he was doing going side to side. The X factor has always been Gastelum's giant Mexican head. Dude can take a punch and he hits really, really hard with that, over with that right hand, man. That's Michael Bisbing. What did you think about Kelvin's? like pure boxing skills as far as like head movement, his jab, his boxing. I think he's a great MMA boxer. But if you put him in a ring with an, uh, an actual like cruiserweight or an Andre Ward or a Kovalev, like he'd get tore up. But from terms of boxing, I think it's solid. I think he, he does what works for him. He's got that. He's just a great overhand left. Good jabs. Closes distance really well, obviously, as we saw in that fight. Um, I think he's got underrated kicks, though, now that I'm seeing, man. He landed that really solid kick on Adesanya. Paul, what did you think about Kelvin's boxing and especially his jab? I think this might have been Israel Adesanya's like, first fight in the UFC against somebody who could jab pretty well. Not only that, I think Israel might have gotten carried away in believing in his reach advantage, that no one can touch me. I have good head movement. I'm the decorated kickboxer. What are you going to do, ex-wrestler slash former bail bondsman? And you could tell in the first round when Kelvin was just kind of pawing at him in that southpaw stance of bouncing in and out, trying to gauge distance, when he would shuffle forward 
Israel wasn't ready for it. He thought, oh, that moved a lot quicker than I was expecting. And even against guys that are much taller and have a better striking background than Kelvin, they still weren't able to hurt Adesanya with jabs or even any type of strikes, frankly. So for an ex-wrestler to be able to hurt him with jabs probably shook Israel. And I gave that first round to Kelvin. And after he got that respect, Israel just had to get a lot more creative, start throwing more kicks at the body because he realized you can move your head out the way and you can shuffle forwards, but that midsection is ripe for the taking. And especially with that shuffling in and out and darting movement that you do, your lead leg is there for the picking. What was interesting was that Gastelum shut down Adesanya's, like all of his creativity and trickery. And that's what made the match so close. And Adesanya won by just outstriking him, not in this like style bender, like fucking Matrix style, but just landing more. They were both landing on each other. And Adesanya just started landing more. And especially in that last round, it wasn't like he was styling on him, hitting him with all kinds of crazy shots. They were both tired. And it's going to, and, uh, Adesanya was like, it's tied up. I'm going to just put in a little bit more. And I think also, I think Adesanya did have more cardio at the end just because he was never throwing with all of his power like Gastelum was. He was always hitting with his usual amount of strength where he relies more on precision than he does like throwing really hard. So I think also that style that Gastelum was employing was tiring him out. So at the end, it wasn't style bending. It was just punches and kicks while you're slowing down. That seemed like the difference at the very end. I also think um, Gaston got a little wide on his punches as the fight went on, and Adesanya was just the sharper, straighter strikes. And you could tell right away, if Gaston would have kept those strikes a little straighter in the fifth, I think it could have done, it would have swayed the fight. Like, round four was amazing. And then I don't know about that fight IQ, going for the takedown. Maybe he was just gassed going for the takedown after he had him hurt. Um, but, yeah, we'll see. He's got to live with it. Yeah, it must have been he was tired. The thing I did like about Gaslam that he did more in this fight than any other, it could have also been because it's a five-round fight, is that when Gaslam knew that his punches was just going to fall short of the head, he just went right to the body, and you would rip into Israel's body. And over time, you could see Israel kind of dropping his hands because he wasn't sure if his, are you going to go for the head? You've been headhunting a while. And then once he takes one or two to the breadbasket, he realizes, all right, I do need to be aware. I need to move back. And when he moves back, Kelvin will shuffle forward and hit him with a jab. And Uzo can only move his head back so much before he still eats the end of Kelvin's jab. Kelvin started going for takedowns like in the middle of the fight and more towards the end. But I think if he started employing that tactic earlier on, it would have done a lot, not just to earn points and get him down. I don't even know if he would have gotten him down and taken him down. Just more of having that in Israel's mind from round one. And that's the thing is, Kelvin has gotten so good at hurting people with his hands, he forgot what brought him to the dance, which in his first few fights, like if you look at the way he fought Uriah Hall, that style is the style that what was winning him those rounds against Adesanya, which was coming forward, mixing in punches and kicks, and then going for the takedowns also, just like mixing it up, going full MMA. And now it just seems like he's mostly an in-and-out boxer. Now that he's with King's MMA, King's MMA has that style of like forward pressure, punches, kicks to takedowns, taking the back, submitting, all of that mixed up. His best moments was when he was fighting like a typical King's MMA guy. But all the times he wasn't doing well was when he was fighting like this newer Kelvin Gastelum, which is kind of like this more in and out boxer type, you know? So a lot of these guys, they fall in love with their hands. 
you know, like a lot of guys that happened to like Dan Henderson, Fedor, and they forget that they could do a lot of other shit. And even if they love their hands, if they do all that other shit, it makes the other person worry about all that other stuff and then makes the hands even more accurate. No, you're right. I mean, Justin Gaethje is the same way. So like all these wrestlers that find out, find out they can bang. Now, we're we're going to see Henry Cejudo come out here like he's Francis Ngannou now in his next fight because he, he clipped TJ in the back of the head. So that's what's going to happen. I really hope that doesn't happen with Henry where he just forgets that he's an Olympic. He'll let us know, though. I don't know if you've heard. He lets you know a lot that he's an Olympic gold medalist. So What if that's all part of the strategy in order to get you to be scared of his wrestling? <laughs> So he doesn't actually have to wrestle. Exactly. Because if he has to remind you in a fight where he shoots for takedowns, that's physical energy. He has, he has to expend. But if he just reminds you, like, don't forget, I have a gold medal. Don't forget, I was the youngest. And then someone else is like, you're the youngest Mexican-American. There's like gold medals who are like 16. Like, get over it. But the more it's in the back of your mind, it does the effect of you actually shooting for a takedown and fainting for it and going for it. It's like, oh, he could still take me down. He could still take me down. So he doesn't have to. Yeah, we're in an era right now where it's so much about striking in MMA. You don't see a lot of fights ending on the ground unless the guy got knocked down with a fucking punch and then they finish it on the ground. But like, when was the last time you saw somebody like take somebody down and then finish the fight with just ground and pound from there? That era was over with. Like, I don't, there's no more like John Fitches and GSPs. I mean, Habib is, is that way naturally. And we may see that in the next fight in September. But there's no more of that. Why do you think there's no more? Are you saying there's no more because that doesn't work anymore? Or you think it's personality? Because I think it's personality. I think that's still effective. People are just wanting to be the striker types. That's like it's like an ego thing. It's the entertainment era too, right? Like it's more entertaining to be a stand and bang kind of guy. You get paid more. You get more recognition. Could be that. Could that be a part of it? I think so. I mean, you look at the subsidiary classes and martial arts like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or boxing or kickboxing. A lot of people got into Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu because of UFC, because so much of it was getting contested and finished on the ground. And now I'm seeing a rise in the popularity of kickboxing and even boxing because MMA is utilizing more of that aspect of the fight. And I think it's self-perpetuating. Then people come in like wanting to be the striker and then you see more of it, which then in MMA, what always happens is then people forget about these other skill sets. And then somebody comes in and exposes those flaws and weaknesses. We forgot about uh, Kamara Usman. I mean, that's how he beat Tyron Woodley, right? He took him down and kind of just grinded him out and pounded him out on the ground. Yeah, he had a full skill set. And when Sam mentioned it's what people want to see, when you look at ESPN showing the UFC portion of it, it's always the strikes. It's always the kicks, the punches, the elbows, the knees. You might see like a submission here and there, but very rarely will you see some highlight of a takedown or a slam into an arm bar, into a choke, into a guillotine. So it feeds into that narrative like, oh, if I want to be featured as the guy on ESPN commercials, if I want to be known as the next big thing, I'm going to have to be a striker because Tyron Woodley had that problem for a while. And he thought, okay, I guess if I want to be the next Robbie Lawler, I'm going to have to be that guy that knocks everyone out. Because very few have been able to emulate the success of a GSP where I could take people down, beat them on the ground, and still be exciting and marketable. For the most part, you're going to have to stand and bang, and you're going to have to be exciting. I think that also, or you could be like a Ronda where you could take everyone down in less than a round. Either be that or that. There's very little middle ground of, what if I have a well-rounded skill set? Like, get the fuck out of here. No one wants to see that. 
And also, I, maybe it's just the least common denominator. The average fan, like if you're watching with casuals, they have no idea what's going on. Somebody pulls out a Darce choke or a triangle. They're like, what? I don't get it. How did he do that? You see somebody get knocked out. Okay, I get it. He, he flatlined the dude. So as an MMA fan, what did you think about the Khalil Roundtree, Eric Anders fight? I think they should have stopped that fight. That dude was getting destroyed. I think that he had no, he had no, he wasn't going to win the fight. You got to protect that young guy. He, Eric Anders is a middleweight, isn't he? And he's fighting, he was fighting at 205 for this fight, but he, he's fought at middleweight before. Roundtree's a beast. The, you hear those kicks. It sounded like the, the 10 second thing. I mean, the guy was just landing strikes at will, dominated Anders. That's what we were saying during our live stream. We did a live stream with David Christian from The Modern Martial Artist, and I'll add a link to that in the show notes. But during the fight, we were like, especially David was screaming, just stop the fight, please. You're going to win. Protect your fighter. As a fan, you love the fucking violence and the back and forth striking. But can there be a point like a mercy roll where it gets too lopsided, where you're like, the aspect that you love as a fan can go overboard and you like, it turns into disgust? Yeah, I mean, it's also different because now I've built relationships with gyms and fighters and different things, and I've sparred before, and I've I've cornered people doing sparring and boxing. You have the, when you see that kind of stuff, it's different because you kind of care for the person. And if if that guy has no chance to win the fight, okay, if the guy has a punch, okay, maybe there's a shot. But if you know he can't knock the guy out, perfect example is the Spence and Garcia fight. I thought that fight should have been stopped in the eighth round, ninth round. Garcia has no shot of stopping Spence or winning that fight. If the, it all depends on if the fighter has a shot to win that fight. Like, I wasn't going to fight. I'm okay with Gaslam not getting stopped in the fifth round because that's the fifth round. You know, he's, he's going to finish the fight. But it, it, every fighter is different. Every circumstance is different. Being a fan of boxing also, do you think there's a different kind of coaching culture in MMA? Because in boxing, there's a lot of times where to protect the fighter, right? The coach will throw in the towel. Where in MMA, you don't know what the fuck has to happen for a coach to throw in the towel. That's very true. Also, but if I know, I noticed that if it's like a um, a sibling cornering or like a father cornering, that's different because they have such an attachment to the fighter, they will stop the fight much quicker. You know, but if you go to any like fight in Tijuana, Mexico, they don't get they don't give a fuck. Like you, you'll let you, they'll let you die in that ring. But MMA, it's very true. Like how much damage can a, can a guy really take in MMA? Punches are a lot smaller, so the the head is not really you know taking a lot of blowback in terms of boxing, but aesthetically it looks a lot worse than probably what it what brain damage wise. And if the strikes are going up and down, there's level changes. He's getting pounded out. Let's say if Connor was getting washed by Khabib, if he was just getting down and ground pounded, let's talk business, blah blah blah. Gotta let the fight keep going, in my opinion. But I agree with you, it's hard. It's really hard in MMA to see. Okay, is my guy just getting wrecked? Maybe the Ortega Holloway fight in a way. Where Ortega was like, okay, Ortega, there's no way he's going to win this fight. He's just getting slaughtered on the feet. I think it also has to do with the culture that MMA gyms have built. We talked about this before. Just bleed. Warrior. I'm a warrior. (laughs) Not only that, but it's seen almost as shameful if a corner throws in a towel. Like, my guy's not tough enough. Whereas in boxing, it's always just live to fight another day. Listen, you can come back from this. It's okay. And it's not seen as shameful. The only time it's shameful is if you pull a Victor Ortiz and you're like, you know what? I'm done. Yeah, I'm, I'm good. No, no more. And you don't get the time to fully explain like, oh, I hurt my eye. I can't see, et cetera, et cetera. But that's the only time. But when a cornerman throws in a towel, like, no, we're done. Hey, this is it. No fight fan is like, oh, you're a pussy. Oh, you couldn't do it. They're like, yeah, he wasn't going to win. But in MMA, we also talk about how there's a lot more camp switching where you're more likely to leave your trainer and go somewhere else. And if you feel, hey, I could have come back. Hey, I might have been able to recover. Why did you do that? 
this isn't the gym for me. You don't care about my career. And coaches might have that fierce inherent in them. They say, oh, what if this guy leaves me? But like you mentioned with the sibling or the father, they're like, no, 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 no. This is it. You've had enough. I care about you. They know it's from the goodness of their heart as opposed to, hey, why'd you do that? I was okay. I could have done it. It's like, yeah, maybe in hindsight, but you were not looking good in there. And there's a fine line between coaches like Trevor Whitman, who they'll ask you in private, like what you did with Nate Marker. was like, hey, what's going on? I don't see it winning. And Nate Marker just whispered like, yeah, I'm done. And it's like, okay, that's it. No hesitation. No, like, are you sure? Oh, you know, why don't you just go out there and just see how you feel this round? It's like, dude, it's not tennis. Like, if he gets hit again, that's fucking it. That's another thousand brain cells gone. I don't remember a high profile. When was the last fight that you, the corner stopped? The corner stopped the fight, or a towel was thrown in. The one time I actually remember seeing it was with uh, Josh Thompson and Nate Diaz, like when they actually threw the towel and physically into that fight, but. I don't remember an MMA where there's a high profile fight where the corner was like, yeah, we're not going to let you go out there. Um, the only time I remember was when Jason Perillo threw in the towel when BJ Penn fought GSP the second time. That's it. He looked at BJ as like, hey, you're not doing anything we told you. And BJ wasn't responsive. He just called the ref over and was like, hey, we're done. He didn't consult him. He just said, no, we're done. There's been a handful of times where a towel has been thrown in in the UFC especially actually in the early days where that was like one of the only ways to stop a fight when it was really like no holes barred. But all the times I've seen it, and you guys can tell me how you feel about it, even though it has happened, even the ones that I could think of, none of them were satisfying. Even the Trevor Whitman one, I think wasn't satisfying. Like none of them were like at the right time. They were always too late. Okay, you did it. And that's where the bar is. Just the fact that they did it is good enough. I guess that's a baby step. But even the times they're doing it now is like way too late, like way after taking a lot of damage. I've never been like, yep, you threw in the towel at the right time. It's like always now you do it. Like even that Ortega fight, they're like, oh, yeah, he, he was his brother. He was protecting, you know, somebody that is real brother, but somebody he's known for his whole life. And it's like, dude, you should have thrown in that towel or ended it at the beginning of the previous round, not in between the rounds. You know what I mean? So even the ones we have. They're still not satisfying. And I wonder if it's because MMA is so young. I think it includes all the stuff that you guys have already said. But I wonder if it's also because the sport is young. A lot of the coaches, let's go back to boxing. A lot of the boxing coaches are old veterans and they're grizzled and they don't give a fuck. So they're like, they'll throw in the towel to protect their guy. They've seen thousands and thousands of fights. They've had so many fighters come through them. You fire me. You're mad at me. People are going to boo, whatever. I don't give a fuck. I'm an old veteran. I don't give a fuck what any of you guys think. Whereas MMA coaches, none of them have gotten to that old grizzled boxing coach level yet. They, they haven't gotten to that point of like, I don't give a fuck yet. Yeah, you made me think like, I totally agree with you, man. Like camp switching MMA, like, oh, I'll just go to another camp. I'll go to the, and they're all just getting paid. They're all, they're all looking for the check. And in boxing, you guys make great points. Like, oh, they, this guy's at the same trainer for 30 fucking years. Like, okay, I care about this guy, you know? It's very different MMA culture. You're, you're, you're right. I never realized that. And even with the Ortega fight, technically Henry didn't stop it. He asked the doctor, hey, doc, what do you think? Oh, can you ask him this question? It's kind of like, so do you like so-and-so? You're just asking for a friend. It's like, just if you want to stop it, stop it, man. No one's going to judge you. Ortega didn't look like a pussy out there. Just say like, hey, man, I care about you. Let's stop this. See, so still not satisfying. Well, it was nice having you. So where can people find you, Alex? Oh, uh, you can find me on all social media at Mr. Alex Fernandez, uh, like MR Alex Fernandez. 
I'm on YouTube. I put up vlogs. I talk about sports, combat sports mainly. I have my two podcasts. You'll probably see in the show notes. And Instagram, I'm popping with my interviews. Twitter, I'm active as heck on the weekends when fights are going on. And uh, yeah, that's where you'll find me. And this week, I'll be covering the Danny Garcia-Adrian Granados fight that is going down at the Dignity Health, the War Grounds, StubHub Center. I'll be there in my suit, flapping away, yelling random questions at fighters while they're trying to cut weight. And they don't want to deal with media. So it's always a good time. And it should be a fun weekend of fights. Well, with that said, that's all, folks. There you go. Goodbye. That was fun.